This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This podcast is brought to you through support from our partner, the Kaliapea Foundation. The Kaliapea Foundation envisions a future grounded in compassion, respect, dignity, reverence for nature, and care for each other in the earth. To learn more, visit Calliopea.org. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. We're not talking about turning the lights off like today or tomorrow. We're talking about one, stopping expansions. So no additional fossil fuels. What we have in reserves right now and what is already in play is already going to push us back an over two degrees Celsius swirl, three, four, five, even six degrees, which is uninhabitable. So um, we need to stop any new infrastructure, any new expansion. Like that's the first thing that banks need to do. Today we are speaking with Tara Hauska and Ruth Breach. Tara Hauska is Anishinaabe from Kuchiching First Nation. She's a tribal attorney, the national campaigns director of Honor the Earth, and a former advisor on Native American affairs to Bernie Sanders. She advocates on behalf of tribal nations at the local and federal levels on a wide range of issues impacting Indigenous peoples. She spent six months on the front lines in North Dakota fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline, and is heavily engaged in the movement to defund fossil fuels and a years-long struggle against Inbridge's Line 3 pipeline. She is co-founder of Not Your Mascots, a nonprofit committed to educating the public about the harms of stereotyping and promoting positive representation of Native Americans in the public sphere. Ruth Breach is a senior campaigner with Rainforest Action Network's climate and energy team. She is working to meet the scale of the global climate crisis through corporate accountability campaigns focused on Chase Bank's financing of climate change, supporting frontline communities impacted by fossil fuel projects, and racial justice within the environmental movement. So, um, Ruth and Tara, last week I spoke with Rachel Heaton and Roxanne White about the disturbing links between the fossil fuel industry, man camps, and missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And I'm so grateful to be picking up this conversation back with both of you today as we continue to deepen our understanding of these interconnected issues and investigating the threads that weave between fossil fuel extraction, the banking sector, and our own wallets. So I'd like to begin to provide our listeners with some information from the 2019 Banking on Climate Change Report Card, co-published by Oil Change International, Rainforest Action Network, Indigenous Environmental Network, Honor the Earth, Sierra Club, and Bank Track. This comprehensive 100-page document measures and tracks 33 banks' role in financing the fossil fuel industry. I'd like to name some of these staggering findings from the report. Since the Paris Agreement was adopted, Canadian, Chinese, European, Japanese, and U.S. banks have financed fossil fuels with a staggering of $1.9 trillion dollars revealing a larger trend of rising financial support each year since 2015. With $600 billion just in the last three years flowing to companies that are expanding fossil fuels. So this report card truly cuts through any illusions we may have around the gross profit and financial investment is not only sustaining, but expanding some of the worst methods of extractive industries and funding climate catastrophe. So Ruth, beyond these numbers, can you share a bit more about the larger trends and main takeaways this report card is telling us? Yeah, I think you hit the, um, you know, the head right on the nail and then looking at kind of the really big picture that the trend is going upward and where we are right now with the climate crisis and climate urgency. We had the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change release 
a report last fall saying that we had just a little over a decade. So the urgency has increased. Um, you also named the Paris Agreement. Um, so out of the Council of Parties in 2015, over 90 nations agreed that uh, we needed to get to a 1.5 degrees scenario for warming to have a, a livable climate. Island nations are already feeling the brunt, coastal nations. So what we're seeing right now is, is the crisis is not happening. It's not something of the future. It's something right now. So it, it's already happening in coastal communities, fires up and down the West Coast, hurricanes. We're seeing extreme weather events. So it's already here. And we are, we're looking at who's underpinning the fossil fuel industry. So we know the Exxons and the BPs, we know that they're horrible actors. We know this, um, but they need, they need money. They need permits. They need insurance to do um, fossil fuel projects. And essentially that's why we've been looking at the banks for over a decade, but um, that has come out really more clearly, I think since Standing Rock, the amount of accountability, public accountability to the banks, because they've been very much kind of behind the scenes and in the, the back rooms. And now what we're seeing is that they're very much at the forefront, that people are understanding how complicit they are and being a pillar of support for the fossil fuel industry. And essentially, Chase Bank is a key driver of fossil fuel expansion, and fossil fuels is what is driving the climate change. So it is very fair to say, you know, Chase Bank is a driver of climate change. You know, one of the things, um, Tara and I were recently at the Chase Bank shareholder meeting, and um, one of the things we were looking at was expansions. So first thing we need to do is stop the harm. There needs to be no additional fossil fuel expansion. We just If we stopped right now and just played out with the fossil fuels that are already in existence and didn't have any additional projects, that would still put us out another decade. And Chase specifically, so we're looking at all the different sectors, whether it's um, tar sands oil or liquefied natural gas, a fracking, they have a hand in all of them. But one of the, the probably most critical areas that we're looking at is um, expansion projects like Enbridge's Line 3, like TransCanada's Keystone XL. We recently heard the news around the Trans Mountain Project up in Canada, Tech Frontier Resources Mine, LNG along the Gulf Coast. This is happening right now and Chase is right there funding all of those companies. So out of the one of the other like revealing stats coming out of the r- report was that they have put 67 billion in expansion specifically. So that is, we're beyond our carbon budget. We're on a downward track. And so that's part of our work right now is to really hold them accountable and shift them in a way away from um, financing fossil fuel industry towards a different path. And it's really going to take a huge scale to meet the need of what's happening here and to really shift this giant and wake them up and move them away. And essentially would be shifting the entire Um, economic sector for the U.S., if not the world. It's really sickening to hear about the expansion, and it kind of reminds me of Justin Trudeau's declaring climate emergency and then just, what, days later uh, uh, (laughs) allowing the Trans Mountain Pipeline to happen. It's like speaking out of both sides of the mouth. It's disgusting. It's disturbing. And I'm so grateful that you both are shedding light to this. And I also want to mention that this year's report also flags banks' investment in companies that are active throughout the entire fossil fuel life cycle, from exploration to extraction, transportation, storage, and the generation of fossil fuel electricity. So I can't help but wonder, and and this may be a lofty question, but would the fossil fuel industry exist at all if it wasn't for banks' financial support? You know, no. You know, some companies are large enough they can self-finance, but they initially had to have that initial capital. So without banks, and we're also opening a area of work on insurance companies, without money and without permits, they can't get these projects done. It's just not in the realm of possibility in how they they finance them. It just wouldn't be possible. Mm-hmm. Well, beyond the numbers of resource extraction, the report also paints a clear picture of the environmental destruction and human rights abuses wrought by the oil, gas, and coal industries particularly amongst indigenous communities. From the surge of fracking in the Permian Basin in Texas and New Mexico in the Anadarko's liquefied natural gas projects in Mozambique, the case studies reveal a truly dark story of banks' utter complicity and active involvement in our current path towards climate crisis and the calculated violence it took to get there. 
So you both stood on the front lines alongside Indigenous communities and resistance to pipeline projects like Dakota Access Pipeline, Keystone Excel, the Enbridge Line 3, like what you're, you know, where you are right now, Tara. And in addition to continued direct action and embodied resistance to fossil fuel expansion, I'd like to hear from both of you about why you've chosen to focus on divestment as a critical strategic tool to disrupt the partnership between banks and corporations? And why is it imperative that we learn to speak the language of money? In terms of the language of money, I think a very pragmatic and important moment in time for us to look at our organizing and look at our activism and our different channels of advocacy and determine what's most effective. And in my experience so far, it has been learning throughout the industry that these private actors who are the people that are most most responsible for the destruction of the planet do not listen to morality, but they do listen to money. It is the language that they operate in. It is the language they understand best. It is their assessment of our resistance. You know, we are in situations like I'm in, we are literally a byline in an assessment of a, of a risk portfolio. Our litigation is a byline in an assessment of a risk portfolio. So they understand that we can cause significant damage to, one, their credibility, their reputational risk is actually quite important as banking institutions, that we are costing the direct corporate actors themselves. Like, you know, they, they lose money when we're engaged in resistance through um, changing the court of public opinion through lawsuits, through the regulatory process, through all these different mechanisms. But ultimately, I think, you know, when you look at who is weak in the chain, insurers in particular, they're the ones that are looking at climate change, understanding that they have to actually assess this as a risk, that they're, they're the ones that have to pay out for this. Um, and with banking institutions, many of them are forward facing. And so the consumers can play a direct role in their reputation can play a direct role in what's actually held in the institution. I mean, Wells Fargo is a perfect example of that. You know, people were targeting Wells Fargo and still are all over the country and around the world looking at, you know, who can we, how do we help your situation here in, in North Dakota and in, in Standing Rock? And it was Wells Fargo is one of the biggest lenders of this, of this project. Take your money out of Wells Fargo Bank. And then on top of it, they were having all these consumer practices that they were violating. And so it became a very easy target of, here's the corporate actor that's actually funding the company. The company can't operate without the money. And so, you know, looking always to seeing what is most effective and what is actually landing within our movements is incredibly important. I think in this moment, divestment is one that is certainly charging, causing large ripples of change. Yeah, I would 100% agree with everything Tara just said. And I think just to add on to that, is that we're looking at um, really hitting the fossil fuel industry's bottom line and and who's protecting their bottom line, that's the bank. So really it's kind of like a secondary look, uh, but again, going back to kind of the pillars of support, it is the banking industry that's there. And I think in any way, whether any kind of situation where you're having to like learn that language, I think we have some brilliant researchers. We use some of the same tools that the banking industry does that's how we track and we can compile these numbers and um that that is part of the work to really kind of understand where they're vulnerable um tara mentioned the risk and risk portfolios that is hugely critical we know that these actions on the ground standing rock is an incredible example the work that's happening at enbridge they they want to avoid that is a social risk for them both in how it relates to their clientele how it relates to their customers and really to in different people that they interact with. And we know that that risk is there, especially when they have a consumer angle, you know, like a bank, you know, people have a choice. They don't have to bank with Chase. They don't have to bank with Wells Fargo. They can bank with other companies that aren't contributing to fossil fuel destruction or indigenous rights abuses. So that's one key piece. And we're always looking at vulnerabilities. Um, and I think that's an important piece to bring to. Also, um, so the banks and even more so now, like the pension funds, it may be that the banks are somewhat short-sighted, so they're only thinking about this next maybe three, five years. Some of the credit loans that they give are actually only mature for a year. The pension funds, they're looking out 30 years, 40 years. So they're more sensitive to, to some of this institutional lending that's happening to the fossil fuel industry. We're also seeing that with investors. People are saying that this is not acceptable anymore. We actually have to address the climate crisis. We can't continue with business as usual. 
there's a lot of reasons that banks is a primary target. It, it makes sense. You know, if you follow the money in any situation, there's a bank somewhere in this mix. So in, in the way that it makes sense, but I think in the, you're raising a great question about speaking the language of money, because the language of capitalism, um, the language of, you know, the USD, you know, paper currency is really toxic. You know, capitalism was built on genocide and slavery. And I think those things are always really present. And that is the business of those banks. And that is what they have carried through. So I think there's both a lot of like historical understanding and then also how that plays out in today in Wall Street. And there is an intensity, as I mentioned earlier, we were at the shareholder meeting and sitting amongst, you know, ExxonMobil's former CEO, uh, Lee Raymond, that literally uh, led the charge in, in climate denial in the 80s. And some of the heavy hitter investors, and board members and people who have probably some of the most capital wealth, you know, in the country, literally sitting in that room with us. It's not intimidating. It's, it's sometimes unsettling. And I think there's things, there's a lot of things that we have to do to kind of balance that out, both like being present in community, really holding a really strong vision about what the world could be when these structures are uh, transformed and really, really being confident in that because these these institutions are ugly and they bred toxicity since they, when they started and um, and they continue to do that. So that is part of like what we're up against, and I think that is present like every day. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine that you have to put on some type of energetic shield in order to go into these spaces and be around these people. And I also. You know, for a long while, I really wanted to run away from capitalism. Like, I don't want to be a part of it. I don't, you know, these kind of idealistic visions of wanting separation, but really realizing this is what we're in and we have to face it. We have to just face it direct on and really learn how to speak the language of money. So I'm so grateful to both of you for being able to be so courageous to go into these places. Not like you're saying, not that it's it's scary, but I can imagine it is unsettling and to look at these mostly men who are doing this kind of work. And I I know I'm sure my heart would be racing just out of anger and pain looking at these people who are making these huge decisions. But if we look back to the no doppel movement, the call to divest from Dakota Access led to city governments divesting actually over $4.3 billion and individual bank accounts holders amounting to $86 million. After all of the delays, the company lost $7.5 billion, nearly double its original projected cost. So Tara, from your perspective, how did divestment transform the movement and expand resistance to the Dakota Access Pipeline? Um, A couple things. You know, I would also want to at least explain to listeners, you know, what that feels like as far as going into some of these spaces with corporate actors, um, that just a handful of people can make such a huge impact. The question that you're asking me is about, it ties into some of the the folks wondering, how do I help when I'm not physically there in that space? How do I help when I'm not willing to chain myself to a piece of equipment or I'm not able to get there because you're so remotely located and I am bound with the system of capitalism to a job, to a, a, a profession, to rent, to all these different things, to bills that have to be paid. You know, how do I how do I still support while I'm stuck in those places? And, you know, it it resulted with just handfuls of people going to some of their city council meetings, handfuls of people that are approaching pension funds, handfuls of people that are engaging in small actions of we're all going to pull our money out of the bank today and we're going to, you know, share the message of that. You know, I think what the law enforcement and private security, when they blockaded us in in North Dakota and, and basically cut off our access to the direct site of action of them building the pipeline in North Dakota and actually also cut off like our, our direct access to hospitals and to, you know, emergency services. Their intent was to, you know, kill what was going on, kill the resistance that was happening and subdue that. But instead what it, what ended up doing was fueling a bunch of people you know, to look into, well, how else can we do this? You know, what else can we do? And then I know myself and some others, we started going to different banking institutions, different branches. We started shutting down bank branches. People all over that, like, turned into people in Seattle, taking up the call, shutting down hundreds of banks at once. 
that turned into other folks looking at, you know, going to their San Francisco city council meetings. I know Jackie Fielder and many others were engaged in, you know, well, let's create a public banking institution if, if that's what it takes, because I don't want to be involved in this process anymore. I don't want to be contributing at such a large scale to the destruction of climate change and to the violation of human rights of indigenous people and others on the ground. You know, I think it's an avenue of advocacy that is very policy oriented and very, you know, you end up in these situations where you're stuck in rooms of corporate actors and you're stuck in rooms of people that are engaged in what I would say is some of the most evil and inhumane acts as far as you as a human being push off liability while making decisions that impact literally millions of people that have become so lost and so caught up in the system of capitalism. And it's not even capitalism at this point. I mean, we're talking about oligarchy, you know, that, you know, it can be very hard on your heart. But at the same time, like, we cannot pretend like these systems don't exist. We cannot pretend like these systems do not present at least some some efforts of, of change or some avenues of change. And that's what divestment is is about. That's what electoral politics are about also you know you're looking at here's this massive system that is based in slavery and genocide like Russo was saying how do you find the trickles and streams of advocacy and change within that and that's what some of these people that are that are pushing back against that narrative in a real way are doing I know following Standing Rock, you continued on to a series of visits in Europe with the Indigenous Women's Divestment Delegations campaign called Invest, Divest, Protect. And the delegation made the strategic choice to first visit banks in countries that have higher human rights standards than the U.S., like Norway, Germany, and Switzerland in spring 2017. And I'm curious about your visit to Norway in particular when the delegation met with the DNB Bank, the Norwegian Parliament, a delegation of Sami indigenous peoples, and with and with Norway's Sami president, ultimately persuading DNB to sell its $331 million stake in the Dakota Access Pipeline. So Tara, what was your experience sitting across the table from European leaders and confronting them with your stories from the front lines? How did they respond to your accounts and take responsibility for their complicity in gross human rights abuses and the violence against indigenous people? That particular campaign effort that is, you know, obviously still ongoing in terms of targeting European actors was a perfect example of what can happen when you have solidarity across impacted communities. You know, it was the Sami people who came to um, Asa Standing Rock who were so inspired by what they saw there that went back home and said, how do we figure out what our own institutions are doing and how do we support the, the folks out in North Dakota? How do we support our indigenous relatives? Um, you know, and worked really hard on first pushing DNB to divest, also creating room for us to visit some of the other banking institutions like ING, like the Norwegian Oil Fund. Those meetings were incredibly, I think, impactful for Europeans. In my experience of meeting with many different bank institutions, it was the first time they heard the story of any Indigenous people in North America. Canada was engaged in practices like that towards its Indigenous people. They just presumed that as, you know, a westernized, quote-unquote, civilized country, that we had our own mechanisms of, you know, accountability for human rights abuses. They were appalled at learning about 
broken treaties and disparate criminal jurisdiction systems and, you know, missing and murdered indigenous women and this, these epidemics of, you know, poverty and substance abuse and extraction that happen in our, in our communities every single day. They could not believe that was the situation in, in North America. And so I think that it was important for them to hear those stories, but it was also incredibly important as a understanding of an effective campaign in the language of money, not just the language of morality. The language of money is we're going to also bring our UN reports, we're going to bring our documentation, we're going to bring lawsuits, and we're going to show them as banking institutions. This is what we're talking about when, you're, when we are bringing a risk situation to you, that this is actually substantive, that we are rights holders, and that this poses serious risk for you beyond just you know, the, the feelings and your own individualized you know, sadness that you experience while you're sitting across the table from us listening to these stories. Because of course, these stories were incredibly powerful and were something where we had just experienced these things. I mean, when I went out in March of 2017, I had watched the camps at Standing Rock burn at the end of February. It was a very, very difficult time for all of us. And for some of us, that was the first time that we had come back together after being on the front lines of in North Dakota for so many months together. So it was difficult. It wasn't, it was a moment where we were back together and we had, you know, essentially they had built a pipeline into the river. And so we had lost and we were all hurting, but we were using that, that hurt and turning it into a point of advocacy and seeing that what we could still do, obviously for, for some institutions that worked. Hmm. I'm also curious. You know, I just, oh, there's, yeah, please. I just want to build on here and that, um, how much that that takes, whether, you know, the, the traveling internationally in time zones and different cultures and issues that are going on. But I think what the, um, what Tara and the Divest, Invest, Protect, and whether we're at the shareholder meetings here in North America, really, it's a lot about bringing humanity into the room. The banks are making decisions. Um, corporations are making decisions based on numbers, based on, right, these risk projections, things like that, credit ratings. And, um, and what, Tara and this incredible group of women have consistently done is really bring it back to kind of the human element and the, the impacts on real people. And that often gets left out of the conversation. And Tara had mentioned earlier also that can happen in the environmental movement as well. People start thinking kind of big picture strategy and, um, and where we really need to center those voices are those ones that are the most impacted. And I, I just, I think it's such a critical piece of this, of, of sharing those stories because there, um, the reality is there are banking people that um, they have hearts. You know, there is kindness there. I think sometimes they've forgotten it. Um, they've forgotten to be human. And, and when we are there or there's, a, you know, delegations of different kinds of people that it is that reminder of their humanity and the impacts that their decisions make. Hmm. Wow. Thank you both for that. And I'm also curious what the delegation learned from this success and whether or not you think these lessons could be applied in an American context? I definitely think, and it's already been said that I certainly observe the power that centering frontline voices can bring to those type of spaces, those type of rooms, which often do not, do not ever have our faces and our perspectives brought to them. That was certainly a lesson, I, I hope, not just for us, but for the, the broader movement. You know, since then, I've actually kind of seen, a, I would say, a, a kind of intentional blind eye put to some of those efforts. Like, I observed several different articles and things written about this kind of re, resurgence of divestment as an effective strategy and how no one really knew where it came from which was really, you know, disappointing and upsetting to me as somebody like that recognized what it was, was this powerful moment on the ground of North Dakota of people wondering, what do we do next? And they were directed to do divestment. And so it was a groundswell that, you know, was started from a globalized movement. And it was very clear to me what the, you know, what the up, uptick was in, in terms of the timing of this attention on divestment. I think in terms of like the, the lessons that can be shared with that generally is definitely within our own movement spaces, re recognizing that nobody can tell the story better than the people that are from that community. Nobody can assert rights 
like the rights holders of that community. You know, we bring forward these stories. We don't have to tell somebody else's story for them. They should be able to tell it them, themselves. But also recognizing that, you know, I, I do agree with Ruth that, you know, the, the cold black hearts of bankers also are, they are, some of them are human beings, you know. I mean, all of them are, all of them are but many have forgotten their own humanity. And that there, there are people who are in those roles, in the sustainability roles or, you know, human rights roles at banking institutions because they really do want to try to do the best they possibly can within those institutions. And so I think, you know, even in the Chase shareholders meeting, it was the first time that I've experienced in a shareholders meeting over the past three years that when myself and another native youth, Nina Rose from, she's the Kota from, from Minneapolis, when we stepped up to the podium, every single person in the room t- turned to look at us, which was surprising. It was the entire room, which one that they were wanting to show respect, that they were listening, you know, and therefore kind of doing their checks of, you know, consultation. But two, also maybe genuinely feeling like they, they should listen to these voices that have now started to show up in their boardrooms, that have now started to show up in their offices, you know, that these are people who hold rights that are different than what they're used to. These are people that hold, you know, the power of treaty lands and territories that are frankly tired of being run over. The lessons that, that are there are are important for all of us to center the people who are being hurt. You know, like we have to do that as people. It, it forces us to think a different way and to react a different way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, watching back to the video footage from your visits around the globe, I'm struck by the rawness of the group's stories and resilience in recounting these horrific ongoing acts of violence in your communities. Michelle Cook, a Diné human rights lawyer, reflected that the delegation, quote, provides a rare platform for victims of human rights abuses to meet with decision makers of financial institutions and banks to ask for accountability, end quote. And it also makes me think, um, Ruth, when how you've gone to great lengths to confront banking leaders in person and once disrupted a talk with Jamie Dimon, the CEO of Chase Bank. And in an article published by Bloomberg, you asserted that, quote, our goal was to get direct access and direct engagement with Jamie Dimon, see the whites of his eyes, end quote. And so I'm wondering for both of you and other Indigenous women, perhaps, who since you all have long since bore the the brunt of colonial violence. And I guess what I'm wondering is have these acts of speaking truth to power and exercising your collective strength through the delegation and otherwise felt like a source of potential healing amidst this unfolding struggle? Um, I guess I'll start. I would say, you know, most certainly it is incredibly empowering to be able to sit across from the people who made the decisions that are killing your community, that are contaminating your drinking water, that are killing your way of life. In in my case here, when I'm talking about a pipeline project that could wipe out our cultural way of life, our cultural identity um, with wild rice, and to sit across the table from somebody who is financing that, you know, there's, that is a very powerful moment. You are looking at the person who is trying to kind of, you know, almost scuttle away and hide from their own accountability and their own responsibility and their own role in it when they are the people who are responsible. You know, they are just as responsible as the the company behind it that's doing the project. They're the ones who looked at that loan and looked at that credit facility, looked at what that company was doing and said, yes, we're going to finance this. Knowing what the fossil fuel industry does to people on the ground, knowing what happens to the drinking water, knowing what it does to millions of people, you know, and the risk they pose to the, to the planet as a whole. And so to sit, just to, just to be in those rooms, I think is incredibly empowering to be able to look at your destroyer face on, head on. But it's also, I think it can be a moment of healing to tell that story to somebody, to tell that story and, and watch how it lands on them. But it's also, you know, powerful to be with each other too, and to sit in rooms of other communities, other leaders, other people who have this shared narrative, no matter what their language is, no matter where they, what corner of the world they come from, they're telling the same story, which is you continue in these ways, you continue to destroy the earth and you're destroying us. 
this violence you're enacting against the earth is, our, is the violence you're enacting against our women. It's the violence you're enacting against our people. And so, you know, those are powerful moments of, of both truth telling, but also, you know, I think a form of healing by getting to sit across from them and to share space with them. You know, we're not out in the streets. We're sitting in the boardrooms across from the table from them. And that's a very different experience. And it also reflects the, the power that we have, that those voices have, that they're not out in the streets anymore. They're sitting in their boardrooms. They know that they have to listen to us. I would totally agree with that. It is, it is cathartic almost to be able to have that direct access, whether it is a boardroom or an event. I really, really enjoy the bird dogs of Jamie Diamond. We've not done one. We've done, I think, five in the last few months, and they've even trained other people to do them um, to the point recently where he was in Philadelphia and he was expecting us to be there. He's like, people have been following me. So I think that was part of the him realizing that one, he was accessible. So this is the you know top paid CEO, the last one standing on Wall Street from the banking crisis and somebody who was very arrogant and is possibly you know, a presidential candidate or nominee you kind of on, on that level and that he could be accessible. I mean, there was multiple times where I could have just reached out to touch him or sat next to a chair. So there's a certain amount of also self-control <laughs> um, in the in really kind of being grounded in nonviolence, but also having that access. And I think that's an important thing to be thinking about um, the the privilege that we bring to those spaces. I think when I come into those, you know, whether I'm setting up for a bird dog or training people or we're getting ready for an action. There is a certain amount of physical violence that we also may, you know, happen. I've been carted out of, you know, the Plaza Hotel. Um, somebody next to me, you know, was thrown on the ground. I know Tara's been at actions on the ground and has seen, you know, where it firsthand or it's actually happening to you. So I think there's a certain amount of just um, safety and considerations that have to happen. And when you are in a, a community that you trust and you know everybody there is looking out for each other, that feels really powerful. Or um, you know your kind of your your role so well that there's like an intuitive like understanding with each other that like you know what needs to be done. And I, I think it, it's also like it, it can be fun and funny to just see some of these folks' faces. That the, the arrogance there, and they feel like they're almost untouchable. You know, they're human. They're accessible. We have found them. We will continue to find them. And it, it does feel really powerful to shed a spotlight, if not for that moment, because the imbalance is so big. And the way that corporate power works and people power. And for that moment, you know, we're able to, to balance things out a little bit and, and really shed that spotlight. And so I think that is, that is really, really powerful. I think the, um, you know, the last piece I, I want to say here is that, that there is almost like an adrenaline rush to it too. It is exciting, but really keeping into context, like why we're doing it. So I also a hundred percent agree with Tara and that, you know, frontline, and impacted communities should be speaking for themselves in that space. And when we do actions, and if that's not possible for whatever reason, then those that is the power that we bring there. So all of the losses, there's been so many people that we've lost through these years that whether it was from environmental substance abuse that was part of a the loss of these systems, like these people come with us to these spaces of our own ancestors, of our own people, of so there's so many people that we bring into these spaces that, um, that you know, their voices that go unheard, that we get those glimpses of opportunities to hold huge corporate decision makers accountable. And that's all the voices that we're there to share. So I think there is in channeling that power of all those people and knowing that the work you're doing is guided and it's, you're exactly right where you need to be right at the right time. And that's how you got access into that, <laughs> that meeting or you got behind the stage and were able to have a direct confrontation. There's these just doors open, literally they open. And I think it's because it's the work is guided and it's right. And, and it's, it's what's necessary. Now, Ruth, I know you've called out Chase CEO, Jamie Dimon, who we've been talking about for his hypocrisy and expressing support for the Paris Agreement and his opposition to President Trump's attempt to withdraw from the accord. 
when overseeing a bank that is funding climate change more than any other in the world. <laughs> Although Chase touts its investments in renewable energy as a quote a market leader in the financial or the financing of wind and solar generating capacity, end quote. They have claimed no responsibility for dumping a total of $196 billion since 2016 into some of the dirtiest sectors of the fossil fuel industry. So how is Chase part of a larger campaign of greenwashing at a time when their practices and financial trails speak a different truth? And how are banks concealing business-as-usual behavior under a cloak of vague future-facing policies, quote-unquote, and trajectories, and marginal investments in renewable energy? Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. Um, again, I, I think that that is uh, totally accurate. It is uh, it is is literally greenwashing, you know, to its fullest. Chase is a great example where they have a policy of needing, I think, it's two hundred billion in in renewables by twenty twenty five. So that gives them almost ten years to meet that commitment. But they've already surpassed that two hundred billion in fossil fuel. So it's not even balancing each other out. And that's part of the campaign work that we're doing is is peeling away what it is, is like their kind of uh, paper shield. And we're cutting through that. We're like, this this isn't acceptable anymore. That was part of what the fossil fuel finance report card is about, is sharing that information that is accessible to the public. Like, this is really what's happening. That's part of why we're out there kind of hollering down Jamie Dimon at different events. That was why, you know, we went to the Chase shareholder meeting. You know, Seattle, again, has uh, you know, shut down dozens and dozens of branches on a similar day. Um, we've had days of action where over 20 cities, you know, went and shut down their local Chase branches and it's only growing. So because this company is so big, Wells Fargo is huge. These are behemoths and it's going to take time for the um, the grassroots and the people power to grow. And it is, it is doing that. And just as we have these litmus tests like Enbridge's Line 3, like TransCanada, what we're working for is the bank to step away from one of these toxic projects, just cut ties with that company and as an indicator that they're on the path to really, really do the important work. We hear a lot of just like crap from Jamie Dimon about a carbon tax. You know, he thinks that's going to fix everything, but yet has no policy or procedure to actually do that internally. And then uh, Tara and I have talked about this a fair amount is that they have these paper policies, but they fall so short on implementation. And so there's a lot of mechanisms that are coming up around um, human rights abuses, around climate change, that business as usual is, is just not going to work anymore. The urgency that we're in right now with the climate crisis, I'm based in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I have people all around me that you would never think of like as radical environmentalists that are like, what are we going to do about climate change? The, the temperature literally is shifting on so many levels and, um, and people are wanting to respond to this. So this this crap that the banks are putting out around greenwashing is just not going to be enough. They're going to have to make systemic changes and they're going to have to be real changes where we're seeing those shifts like literally on the ground. So whether that's climate stability happening in coastal communities, um, whether that's, uh, you know, stopping expansions of projects and then stepping away from some of these most toxic ones. Those are just some of those first few steps that they're going to have to take to really, really transform, to really meet the needs of what our future, our present and our future demands. I'd like to go um, a bit deeper into this conversation around divestment tactics and strategies. And while divestment pressure is being applied on an institutional scale, 
At the end of the day, it's our money that banks are investing without our clear knowledge or consent. And on the flip side of that coin, it's also our responsibility to become more vigilant. So could you speak to the role of the individual within this movement? How much of an impact do we really have when we decide to divest our personal funds and bank accounts? And what would you say to those who dismiss divestment as a distraction from the larger systemic problem or fixate on the idea that divestment is just a small drop in the bucket? The amount of impact a individual can have in a movement space is something that I think is we are too ready to dismiss within ourselves. You know, when we're talking about a handful, literally a handful, like five Native women who are convincing the Norwegian oil fund to withdraw from the Dakota Access Pipeline, and then that same oil fund says that it's thinking about pulling out of fossil fuels altogether. And then you look at, you know, a handful of people who were over in San Francisco forcing the narrative of a public bank, which has now become, it's in the process of becoming law. I mean, those are individuals who are taking up this, this banner of we have to do something. You know, the, the complacency and willingness to just say, this is too large of a problem. Climate change is too much. I don't know where to even begin. So in lieu of, you know, trying to figure out what that is, I'm just not going to do anything. You know, that's too often the case. And people, I completely understand that people feel the incredible, overwhelming um, nature of climate change. It, it is overwhelming. We're talking about 10 years, mass extinctions of millions of species, people who are already in migration patterns, you know, areas of the world that have already run out of clean drinking water, potable water. That is a situation that is terrifying. You know, it's absolutely correct that this is finally reaching every community that you could possibly imagine, communities that are not who you would think would be the typical people. I was just at a, at a retreat with some folks and hearing that the number one issue for some of our black voters in the country is climate change, you know, and how surprised the, the organizers were to learn that, that they didn't think that that would be number one, but it, it, it was consistently number one, no matter what the age range was, no matter where they were coming from, whether they're rural or urban, people recognize it as a problem. And so, you know, the importance of the individual that's saying, yes, I can pull my money out of this, of, that is huge. You're both recognizing your own power within, you know, this capitalistic narrative that's all run off of our backs and our money and our investment and our consumerism. And, you know, looking at what does my individual impact create? So it's not just obviously your money, it's the individual choices that we can make to, you know, change our, our food habits, change our, you know, trying to be, be as, as efficient as we possibly can with our own carbon footprint but not falling, not falling, I would say, victim to the mentality of, I'm just one person, so what difference can one person make? If millions of people bought into and, and agreed with the understanding that these banks and institutions cannot run off our money, that would make a huge difference. The amount of, of power that people have to say, I want something else, you know, the industry will respond to that. That's what capitalism is. That's what consumerism is. If we say, I don't want to have single-use plastic covering every single piece of fruit I buy and every single beverage that I'm consuming, they will respond to that. It's just a matter of actually taking the initiative to do it. And the power of organizing with each other. I mean, getting an entire city to adopt a public banking, banking model, that is such huge change. You know, you're, you're then empowering people. You're forcing the narrative of, I don't want to be directly invested in climate change. I don't want my city to be directly invested in causing climate change and all the other human rights abuses that are probably associated within our investment portfolio. You know, those are the type of changes that we need because the, if you left it to just what the existing narrative is, which is you've got some civil society that's gaining traction in some spaces. So we're gaining traction maybe in boardrooms, some shareholder resolutions. You know, we're making some changes with the equator principles with certain policy, but that in and of itself is not enough. It should not be up to the the willpower and work of just a handful of people, really, when you think about the billions of people on the planet to save ourselves, you know, because that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about saving the planet. We're talking about saving ourselves. And so the power of the individual to realize that they are part of a collective and that their individual identity can amount to so much more when they are empowered with each other is I think, you know, what 
a lot of what organizing and movement is about, you know, that we have to do this, even if we are past the point of scientific no return, we have to do this as a people. We have to at least do the best that we can and, and do it as justly as we can. So this question, I, it's kind of weighing on my mind and it's going back to the boardrooms and um, the people that are making these decisions. And I guess, you know, towards the end of this report card, it reflects, quote, the growing cataclysmic climate disruptions that threaten the existence of humanity itself appear to have have had little or no effect on many banks' single-minded concentration on their bottom lines. Those in charge of these corporations should be more concerned about the well-being of future generations, including their own children and grandchildren, which is so fundamentally tied to the well-being of our Mother Earth. There is little time or use for remorse, end quote. So this is a huge question, but what do you think is at the heart of this fundamental disconnect in seeing how all of our futures and that of our children are incumbent on the protection of land, climate, and water? Is this about willful ignorance or money? Or what do you think the root is that's causing this type of sheer insanity? Oftentimes when I'm in spaces of of folks and trying to push narrative shift and trying to reach their hearts in a real way. I push at how most people feel like something is wrong, that there is a sense that something is wrong. And too often there's a moment in their lifetimes when they feel like, you know, what is my purpose? What is my, you know, what am I doing in life? These things are not making me happy. Like these things that I thought would make me happy, like, physical material things are not making me happy. Like I was like, I've thought my whole life because that's what we're fed from the second we are born to whatever stage of life you're in right now, listening to this, it it's almost feels like a betrayal, right? Or people get tired and they just keep stuck in the same cycles. And then you see, you know, the explosion of opiates into our uh, society. You see the explosion of depression and suicide and all of these different ills and sicknesses of people. And we've so fundamentally lost the most basic understandings of who we are, the most basic understanding that, you know, you cannot live without clean water, you cannot live without clean air, you cannot live without a healthy earth, that to destroy the earth is to destroy yourself. And too many of the the population has grown so numb to that when they are purchasing almost every single aspect of their lives from a store, that they are they're not thinking about the the chicken on the farm that's the appalling and the trauma that they're consuming, you know, on the daily. They're not thinking about that because we haven't been, we've, we've almost convinced ourselves that we're above the, the earth, that we are somehow greater than the most powerful than our home, you know, our home is, and our home is responding to that, obviously, you know, as powerful as human beings are, you know, we're not powerful enough to figure out how to, survive and, and, and stop hurricanes or to survive and completely stop wildfires or to stop the, the you know, the rising seas and the, the, the glacial melt that's happening. You know, we're not powerful enough to do that. And so I think at the core of it, people have just forgotten who they really are. And we have a, a limited amount of time to try to reinforce and those rememberings within people but you know I think it's upon all of us to do the best that we possibly can to try to reach as many people as possible and you know instill those values while we still can. Ruth I don't know if you have anything that you would like to say speak to that um, or if there's anything that you feel hasn't been said in this interview so far that you would like to bring attention to. Yeah, I think building on what Tara was just saying, I think that um, we're sick as a society and we're socialized to be disconnected. And I think that the um, the bankers just really epitomize those kind of those positions in a way that they're removed and disconnected, not only from the earth, from each other, but also from the projects that they're actually funding. So it's just numbers on paper. And um, I think we touched on it earlier is just this, this part of remembrance 
of humanity. I think that's the biggest part of this work, um, whether it's just interactions between each other, but then also with the corporate bad actors, that that is, that is probably actually the real work that we're doing here and how important it is. I think the last piece that I think I want to touch on because it's so something it's very prominent for me right now is um, is self-care and community care. We do this work and it's so very hard. And so I think I just maybe want to remind people to like check in on their people and to see how people are doing, Um, whether it's suffering from loss or trauma, if there's healing overwork, you know, all these things that can happen to people that, that take on these projects and to be able to, there's, there's, so even if you're not on the front lines, it may be that, you know, you're a cook or you can provide care. There's something that everybody can do to contribute, um, to support and that, um, whatever it is that your gift and skill is that can be put to use to really, really help out. So I think that that's another way that people can show up is doing some of that broader care and, and support work and the community. And it's so, so important and it's so very needed. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with you, Ruth. And this has been such an incredible conversation. And as I was looking through my notes, I have one last thing that I wanted to ask just to get my own clarity on. When it comes to supporting alternative energy, the report notes that, quote, a just transition for the workers and communities that are currently dependent on fossil fuel extraction is far more likely under a managed decline of mining and drilling rather than allowing these industries to face sudden closures due to policy changes, market failures, or climate catastrophe, end quote. And I think it's really important that we understand the complexity of what it would be to take down the fossil fuel industry. So I would really like if you, either of you could further explain this importance of, quote, a managed decline of mining and drilling and what is necessary in terms of reinvestment for a just transition. Um, I think that's something that we hear pretty regularly in the boardrooms is that they're like, you know, we can't stop fossil fuels. So hospitals need plastics. And, um, you know, they have all these reasons why or the the plane that you took or the air conditioning that's in this room. We we hear these things pretty regularly, you know, from Jamie Diamond and all these other folks. We're not talking about turning the lights off like today or tomorrow. We're talking about one stopping expansions. So no additional fossil fuels. What we have in reserves right now and was already in play is already going to push us back an over two degrees Celsius swirl, three, four, five, even six degrees, which is uninhabitable. So um, we need to stop any new infrastructure, any new expansion. Like that's the first thing that banks need to do. And then they need to look at, at again, um, as a series of five years, 10 years, that to the point where we're getting off fossil fuels eventually. Um, we already see coal on its way out. Tar sands as well is completely vulnerable. Um, there's been a huge investments in liquefied natural gas and fracking, um, so gas. And um, so we, we need to stop and curb some of those. But I think that's really, really important for understanding is that we're looking at a downward trend over a series of years. We're not talking about things happening literally tomorrow. So I just wanted to like make that super clear. Yeah, I think. And then Tara, if you want to touch on just transition. Yeah. And I, I also would say too, you know, I saw this interview and I'm sure many of us that follow the environmental, you know, coverage, which is needs to be far, far more. I saw this quote by uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, you know, when he's talking and in, in a very, very upfront way about what needs to happen. Um, in terms of the climate, that you can't expect it to be easy, you know, that it's not going to be just a simple matter where we're all great and everything continues on the way that it always has. It's, it's going to be painful because it, it, there's major, major, major change that's needed, you know, and to pretend otherwise is to deny what basic science and fact is. You know, if we want to save ourselves, which is what we were talking about, it has to be immediate it has to be urgent and it has to be the urgent level of response that's needed to the urgent level of the problem you know it's not going to be this easy no problem let's gradually phase out till 2050 2070 i mean that's insanity you know when we're talking about 10 years and from the ipcc report when we're talking about mass extinctions of species you know millions of species it is insane to even think about 2050 and 2070 as our goal markers, you know, as the fact that we can't even get an enforceable Paris Accord put out through the world, you know, that's, that's where we're at. 
you know, that's the best that we can do at this point, or that's what they're saying is the best that we can do from the world's leaders. And so, you know, it's very incumbent on those who are willing to make urgent change and engage in urgent response to do those things that we recognize our own power and we recognize that a handful of people can make significant change, far more significant than a policy that's adopted. And it is important for those policies to be adopted. It's important to set international goals and, and talk about that and create a platform for an agenda and, you know, aspirational language that we should all be already following. Um, but it also has to come from the, the, the people. It has to come from the people who are, you know, the system on which all of this runs. It ultimately all runs off of our power. And so, you know, in terms of a, a just transition, you know, just transition is referring to the fact that, you know, we have to center justice as we make this difficult transition, that we recognize that there are sacrifice zones, that my people and many others are treated as sacrifice zones currently, that we are not, quote unquote, important enough to matter, that we are just merely a statistic or a, you know, a, a, a risk assessment in someone's portfolio somewhere about a community that's going to experience these things that, you know, when it comes to Dakota Access, they didn't, it, they couldn't put it through the drinking water of Bismarck because it was 98% white, but they could put it right next to the reservation because of the, you know, environmental racism that exists. You know, that is the opposite of what just transition is. Just transition is centering and recognizing that we have to put justice in, in all of our models of change that when we talk about Green New Deal and we talk about, you know, these policy changes that are needed towards shifting our economy away from fossil fuels, that unless we have justice at the center of that, we're, we're going to end up at the exact same place that we already were. That if we only have so much time left, it better be the best that we can possibly do in that time, that we can at least treat each other as human beings and have justice at the, the heart of, of all that we're doing, justice and equality that black and brown folks are not expendable and that in fact many of us are actually holding off you know on the world's remaining biodiversity as the rest of the population is busily engaging in destroying us that black and brown communities are experiencing the impacts of decisions made by other people and that that cannot continue to be the narrative as we move into this next phase of what climate climate disaster looks like so powerfully spoken, both of you. And I just want to say on behalf of the For the Wild team and the For the Wild community, we are so very grateful for your courage, all the work that it takes for you to do what you do. And Ruth, speaking about self-care and supporting community that um, that's doing this work, that is on the front lines, that is in the boardrooms, and that we all have a role, whether it's being a tender, a, a cook, um, anything to support the people like you both that are out there in the front. And if there's anything that you would like to say to the For the Wild community in terms of what kind of support they can uh, provide either of you or the organizations that you work with, uh, please let us know. And I think it's really important for us to be able to know what we can do if there is anything at this moment. Um, yeah, I think there's there's a handful of things that folks can do. Um, look at who your bank is. Who are you banking with? Where does your money go? Um, if you were able to cut ties, you know, with Chase, with Wells Fargo, um, look at some local credit unions and options and maybe a little bit closer to you. If you're not able to do that, send your branch manager a letter and let them know that or an email that you're not okay with the bank funding climate change. Um, have your voice be within the system you know, call a regional director. So participate in online actions. Um, financial support is always needed. You know, this work takes money. It takes funds. Um, if folks are able, they can give money. Look at your local community. Are people doing actions? Are they organizing events? You know, is there a local indigenous community there that is active? Um, so there's all different ways that people can show up. That's just a few, like right off out of the gate. And then as folks get more involved and deeper, there's, there's always stuff to do. Hi, everyone.
everyone, this is Hannah, one of the writers and researchers here at For the Wild. We'd love for you to join us this week in taking action steps to support the divestment movement, as well as those on the front lines working to disrupt the flow of money from Wall Street to big oil. First, visit mazaskatalks.org for an in-depth guide on how to divest your personal finances, your community or institutions, and use their resources to spread the word. You can also explore other banking alternatives such as credit unions and local banks at defunddapple or dapl.com. Second, participate in hashtag shutdownchase or other actions happening in your local cities, or start up a divestment campaign in your own community. Third, make a pledge to tell leaders to stop global giveaways for oil, gas, and coal companies by visiting stopfundingfossils.org. We also encourage you to write letters and phone your banking manager and regional director to tell them to divest from these toxic, harmful projects. For links and more information, you can visit our website or click on the details tab of this episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was from Jordan Moser and Lake Mary. And our theme music is from the late and great Kate Wolf. I'd like to give a shout out to our team, podcast production and editing Andrew Stores, writing and lead research Aidan McRae, outreach and research Francesca Glassbell and Hannah Wilton, Podcast music, Carter Lou McElroy. Digital community organizing, Aaron Wise. Graphic and web design, Erica Ekram. And Melanie Younger with partnerships in media. I've been too long away from this wild open sky On the country trails and wide Through the canyons dark and wide